We are currently in the divided kingdom, for those uh, who haven't been in our class. It's the period after uh, the United Kingdom, where Saul, David, and Solomon were king. And then after Solomon, the kingdom split. You have the northern kingdom, also referred to as Israel. And you have the southern kingdom, referred to as Judah. And we've been going through this this historical narrative period of all these different kings and all that was going on, and particularly in the northern kingdom, uh, it is bad. The king, uh, the tribes there have just really abandoned the Lord, worshiping other gods, and we're going through all of uh, that history as well as what's going on down in Judah as well. But in particular, we are... We've been looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha Elijah is now off the scene as we've studied, and Elisha, that's, we'll see him in our story today. This, this period of Elijah and Elisha is very unique in terms of the miracles that are going on. In fact, these kind of miracles have not been seen since the days of who? Moses and Joshua. It's very different. I mean, these guys are, the Lord has really given them power to, to do amazing miracles. And we will not see this again until Messiah, until Jesus arrives. And the, the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. So it, it is a very unique time period in biblical history. In the lives and events of these two prophets, 2 Kings chapter 5 provides a unique narrative of a man being healed of leprosy and the conversion of a foreigner to worship Yahweh, the God of, of Israel, the one true God. If I were to summarize this chapter, it would be this. God shows grace to a humbled, high-ranking foreigner through Elisha by not only healing his leprosy but also changing his heart to worship God and that's a preview of what will take place when Messiah comes God also humbles and punishes a servant of Elisha because of his greed deception and dishonoring of the Lord and of his anointed prophet so I invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. If there are any Aggies among us, that is right after 1 Kings. <laughs> if there's any confusion about that. Sorry, you Aggie fans. There's the summer. Okay, we begin in the first 14 verses looking at the healing of Naaman from leprosy. Verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So we're, we're introduced to this man, Naaman. We get some background on him. First of all, 
He was general of the army of Aram. It uses the term captain. That word really means that he was the highest ranking officer of the army. He was in charge of the whole army of, of Aram. Just by way of reminder, Aram is this nation that is north and a bit east of Israel. If you think in modern day terms, what's the country? It's Syria, right? And in fact, even in some Bible translations, they, they'll use the word Syria instead of Aram. But uh, that's where he is from. Second, it says he was a great and prominent man to the king. He was a great man with his master. Master would be a reference. We actually see that in verses 4 and 5 to the king of Aram, who uh, in all likelihood is Ben-Hadad II. He's a man uh, of major importance. He's very prominent. Third, he is highly respected. He has a, a high rank, a high status. He's very distinguished, not only among the people, but also the army, also even in the presence of the king as well. And why is that? Well, it says because he led Aram in many military victories. He led them to victory. Uh, it, but it says, notice, the Lord had given these victories. Now, that's a comment by the biblical writer. That's not a, a comment or a testimony at this point of Naaman or uh, the king. But uh, that's what the writer is saying. And we know clearly from Scripture that God is sovereign even over pagan nations and people. Daniel 4.32 says the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So God sets up the boundaries of nations, kings, and uh, gives them victory and, and defeat and so on. Well, fourth, we see that, that Naaman was a valiant warrior. He had exceptional strength and courage in the face of danger. That was his reputation. This term also can ironically describe a wealthy person. And so perhaps he he was both because of his wealth. He had been put in a very prestigious uh, position. But finally, the text tells us that he was a leper. Now, in ancient times, uh, leprosy can refer to various uh, skin disorders, some being superficial, but some being more serious also. But think about it. Naaman is is functional. He's in a. He's around people and he, he's not some outcast. Uh, leprosy is dealt with differently, apparently in Aram than in Israel. Uh, so he's he's functional. This is not the modern leprosy that we think of that's known as Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease is, it's a bacterial infection that can lead to significant damage, not only to skin, but also to nerves. And it, it can actually become crippling today. And, but Hansen's disease was first discovered in Egypt in the second century BC. So that's not really what's in view here. But again, leprosy could be serious, but it could also be superficial 
Well, in verses 2 to 5, we see that Naaman receives advice and gifts in seeking healing from Elisha. Verse 2, now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. It's talking about these bands. In other words, there were various raids that went on in Israel. There's a long history of conflicts between Israel and Aram. And in fact, in the next chapter, there is all-out war between Aram and Israel. So uh, in this, between these major wars, uh, there's these various raids where they would go out into some uh, towns in Israel and wreak havoc. And from one of these raids, this, there's a young a small girl who was taken and she became the servant of Naaman's wife. Verse 3, she said to her, mis- her mit- mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. So this, this young girl knows about uh, Elisha and the fact that he has done some amazing miracles. He is a true prophet of God. He is unique. He is set apart from all the other prophets. And she says, he could heal my master, Naaman. And she mentions this to Naaman's wife. Well, words goes then to Naaman. Verse 4, Naaman went in and told his master. Now, that would be the king of Aram. He goes before the king saying, thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. She didn't, he didn't actually say thus and thus. It's, <laughs> that's a summary. In other words, you fill in the blank, uh, and he, he gave the king all the detail of what the girl said. Verse 5, then the king of Aram said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So the king writes a letter, an official letter, And we'll see the contents of that letter coming up. Notice that it's being addressed to the king of Aram. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. You might not think much about clothes, the changes of clothes, but that was a big deal too. But wow, 10 talents of silver, about 750 pounds. 6,000 shekels of gold, that's about 150 pounds of gold. In all, some 900 pounds, nearly half a ton of precious metal. You, you feel sorry for the, the mules <laughs> that have to carry all that, right? Uh, but this is a significant gift that the king gives to Naaman to, to provide as part of uh, be, being healed that request verses six and seven uh, is where Naaman approaches the king of Israel who then considers he's quite shocked with this request we'll see his response verse six so he Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel that would be Jehoram saying and now as this letter comes to you behold I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. 
Now, what, what's interesting about that statement or that letter? Anything jump out to you? There's no mention of the prophet, right? It, it, the letter looks like, hey, king, I want you to heal this, this man. You can imagine the reaction of Jehoram. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? And you can imagine, he's surrounded by you know, the people who are around the king and he takes the piece of paper and he's shaking it. But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. So the, the king sees this as some kind of provocation. Like, you heal this guy or else there's going to be trouble. Because that's the way the relationship had been between the two countries. So he does not receive the letter well. He, he tore his clothes. Uh, tearing your clothes in this period, that was a sign of major distress and grief. The king knows that he can't heal a man of leprosy. Now granted, the king has departed from knowing the true God as has the whole northern kingdom. But he at least knows enough to know that only God can do this kind of thing. He, he at least remembers enough of the Mosaic law that says in Deuteronomy 32:39, where God says, and see now that I, I am he and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. In verses 8 to 10, Elisha finds out what has happened and he calls for Naaman and gives him instructions. Verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Kind of the implication is, king, you may not realize there's a, a true prophet of God in Israel, but it's about to be demonstrated to this man that there is. The king is helpless to resolve this. And by the way, you kind of wonder, what, what did he tell Naaman? Like, while this is going on and word is spreading, uh, could you go wait in this waiting room and give us time to kind of figure this out? Don't know where Naaman is, uh, but word apparently quickly gets to Elisha, and he he's going to send for Naaman. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. <laughs> I think this is funny. You imagine, look at this entourage. I mean, these horses carrying nearly a half a ton of precious metals. And this guy is, he's a big shot. Got an entourage. Um, has all of his attendants and so on. And he's come, 
standing at the doorway and knocks at the door and the servant comes to the door and he, you know, Naaman says, hi, I'm, I'm, I was called here to see Elisha to be healed. And you can imagine the servant saying, well, uh, Elisha is not available at the moment. But if you would go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and he, he gives that message. So Elisha doesn't even come to the door to greet him and just simply sends the message for him to go. He, Elisha knows why he's, he's there, and he says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. Well, what, what do you think Naaman's reaction is going to be? He's furious, not only at Elisha's treatment, but at the instructions that Elisha has given him. Verse 11, but Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, Behold. Do you guys ever begin to sentence with behold? I mean, <laughs> that just seems strange to me. But he said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Kind of speaking about himself. Are not Abanon and far par the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. You know, think about Naaman's response. He's this, he's this important, well-respected person. People always show deference to him, show pop, proper honor to him wherever he goes. He's expecting better treatment than what he's getting from Elisha. And he, he says, look in verse 11, where Naaman says, he will surely come out to me. The, the, the words, the idea is he will surely come out to one like me, like a person who deserves to be properly greeted and honored. But Elisha doesn't go out to meet him, not because of his leprosy, but because, as Carl Keel, a commentator, says, because of his state of mind. Naaman thought that Elisha was inferior to him. I mean, that's kind of his mindset. He's this supreme leader of the army, of the military, and almost er everyone's beneath him except for the king himself, and that's just his mindset. That's his M.O., you know, on a daily basis. And Elisha says, no, it's different here. Naaman thought that Elisha was inferior, but again, Naaman was the one because Elisha serves a far greater king than does Naaman. Naaman expected Elisha to, to come out and perform some kind of ceremony and rituals like all the other prophets and supposed healers. But instead, Elisha will do everything to show that he is totally different. He told him to go wash seven times in the Jordan River. And, you know, in Naaman's response, he thinks Elisha is focused just on cleansing him, like just washing the skin and and Naaman says, hey, the rivers back home would be better, would do a better job of that. They're clear. 
But this Jordan River, you know, it's a cloudy clay color. I, I wouldn't wash in it if I just wanted to be cleansed. He thinks Elisha is a quack. Why did Elisha do things this way and, and suggest this? Well, Don Wiseman, another commentator, says the aim was to teach him humility and faith. A great man may expect some great thing, some great thing, while God often tests us with small things. Let me ask you, are you a person where you focus on showing faith and obedience only in the big things of life? Or do you also show faith and obedience in the small, everyday things of life? Carl Kiel writes, Naaman had been greatly strengthened by the exalted position which he held in the state and in which everyone bowed before him and served him in the most reverential manner with the exception of his lord, the king. And he was therefore to receive a salutary lesson of humiliation and at the same time was also to learn that he owed his cure not to any magic touch from the prophet, but solely to, to the power of God working through him. So all of this was orchestrated for the benefit of Naaman and all who would hear about how great the God of Israel is. When verses 13 and 14, we see that, that Naaman being persuaded by his servants, he submits and then is healed. Verse 13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him. Remember, Naaman went away in a rage. I mean, he's, he's done with Elisha and the, all this nonsense from his perspective. But his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So these, these wise servants of his are saying, he, by the, first of all, they call him my father. That's not normal. These are not like blood relatives. But it, that, that address conveys a closeness in relationship. And they were able to do it. He doesn't rebuke them for that. So they, they have a special relationship and he's receptive to their to who they are as people and, and their counsel. And he says, and they tell him, you, if, if Elijah had told you to go do some great thing, you would have done it to be healed. So surely you would do some simple thing. They're arguing from the greater to the lesser. If you're willing to do a great big thing, surely doing an easy thing makes rational sense. And he, he recognizes that they're right. So verse 14, so he went down. He traveled from Samaria to the Jordan River, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The number seven is historically a number of completion. And as Kiel states, it is the stamp of the works of God. We see it a number of times in Scripture. 
What did it take on Naaman's part? He had to humble himself. He had to obey the word of God that had been given to him. Whether he understood it or not, whether it made sense, he had to humble himself and submit. Be obedient to what Elisha instructed. And what an amazing miracle it is that took place. He was healed. His leprosy was gone. It says his flesh was like that of a, a young child. I, I think his flesh was soft as a baby's bottom. You know, the expression is. But it says he was clean. So it's a clean baby's bottom, right? <laughs> that, that's, that would be the analogy. <laughs> but it, it's amazing what, what had happened. Elisha's nowhere around. Elisha hasn't touched him. He simply gave the word, go do this and your leprosy will be removed. It's an amazing miracle of God. Well, there's more that happened in that moment than just his flesh being healed. And we'll see that. We see the change in the gratitude of Naaman in verses 15 to 19. Beginning with the fact that Naaman acknowledges faith, faith in Yahweh. The, the one true and living God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And he offers to Elisha gifts, but Elisha refuses. Verse 15. When he, Naaman, returned to the man of God with, with all of his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This is a confession of faith. In the, the one true God, he, he's gone from believing in other gods, gods that are worshipped, you know, back in Aram and other places. And he's saying there is only one, one God where in all the earth. And his eyes have been opened to that fact. MacArthur writes in saying this, Naaman put to shame the Israelites who continued to blasphemously believe that both the Lord and Baals were God. Now think about it. The, the people in the northern kingdom, they were worshiping Baals and you know they had gone polytheistic like all the other surrounding nations. Um, and they were supposed to be the, the covenant people of God that represented God, but they've abandoned that. And here you have this foreigner who is coming in and has come to believe that there's one, only one true and living God. God ordained these events to extend faith to a man who was outside the covenant people of Israel. And folks, it's a precursor of what is going to happen when Messiah comes, bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Because God's people... Uh, in, a, in a general sense, reject the Messiah and salvation is provided to people from other nations. That's what this is a, is, it's a precursor. This reflects a precursor to what is to come in a much greater way. Look at verse 15. So please, so Naaman is, is again talking to Elisha. So please take a present from your servant now. But he but he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. 
And he, Naaman, urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman doesn't give up. He's, he pleads with him, please, I'm so grateful. I, I want to honor you. I want to, to help and show my respect and gratitude. And Elisha says, no, I'll have none of it. Now remember, 750 pounds of silver. I, I calculated it out based on today's price, uh, current price, and then priced out 6,000 shekels of gold. That's about 150 pounds, pounds of gold. It's massive. If you add all that up, it's over $5 million in today's money. Now, granted, the value would be different then, but still, we're talking about big time, game-changing difference, you know, in terms of provision and so on. And Elisha says, no, I'll have none of it. It's really remarkable. Why does Elisha refuse to accept the gift? Well, Elisha is showing that he is not driven. He's not controlled by selfishness or profit in his ministry. And, you know, he determined in that particular setting uh, this was the right thing to do. He wanted to honor and all honor and attention to be on his God with absolutely no distractions. And this was for the benefit of Naaman, the testimony that Elisha is giving. It's for the benefit of all the, the observers, the whole entourage of people that are finding ab out about the one true, all-powerful God of Israel. And it's, it's for the benefit of all who would come to hear of this event. Back to the, going back to, how the message would be carried to the people of Aram, how the message would spread amongst the northern kingdom, and how you would read about the message today. This event was a, was a big deal, and Elisha wanted to properly represent the Lord to, to a foreigner from another country who had come to embrace true faith in the God of Israel. It's not wrong for a minister uh, or a prophet to be paid. And Elisha did accept gifts at other times to, you know, to provide for, for himself and those who serve with him, but, but not here. Well, Naaman seeks to worship God alone and return with some soil from Israel. Verse 17, Naaman said, if not, in other words, if you're not going to allow me to to give you a gift, if you're not going to accept that, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. MacArthur writes, in the ancient Near East, it was thought that a god could be worshipped only on the soil of the nation to which he, he was bound. Therefore, Naaman wanted a load of, of soil from, from Israel on which he could take back home and, and offer upon that soil burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord when he went back to Damascus, the capital city of, of Aram. Granted, Naaman is an infant in the faith, right? He, he comes with all the preconceived ideas and, and he thinks that you know, to worship God properly, it has to be on the soil of, of Israel. That's just where he is. 
But the bigger point is that Naaman is a changed man. Right? His, his heart has been transformed. He is totally different. And he's saying, I will worship no other God but the God of Israel. What, what happened to Naaman was just not external healing. There was something inward that happened as well. Before, and this is interesting, he thumbed his nose at how dirty Israel's Jordan River was. Like, I wouldn't want to be washed in that river. You know, that to be clean, I'd go back home. But now he wants to carry some of that same dirt back with him so that he can properly worship God. It's really a transformation. Verse 18, in this matter, so he's still talking to Elisha, in this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, talking about the king of Aram, goes into the house of Rimmah, Rimmon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Aram is a it's a pagan nation worshiping a pagan God and Naaman because he's a high ranking general he would be required to accompany the king inside the temple there in Damascus and Naaman already sees the conflict and he he asked he asked the Lord he's asking through Elisha he's asking the Lord to forgive him in this matter saying that it it wouldn't reflect who he is who he's truly worshiping in his heart because he pledges to only worship God you know it's not mentioned here but perhaps in time he would become like a Daniel and he would make an uncompromising stand regardless of the consequence. We don't know. But Naaman, he's brand new to, to worshiping the Lord. And the Lord will, will work that out. And we, we kind of see that actually in, in how Elisha dismisses him. He, he dismisses him in peace. Verse 19. He, Elisha, said to Naaman, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Elisha doesn't give approval or disapproval on Naaman's request, doesn't really respond. He simply gives this parting declaration. And as Don Wiseman points out, he he commends him, quote, to the further guidance of the Lord and of his grace. The Lord will continue to work in you and mature you in following him properly. Well, a remarkable story, a remarkable miracle well the second or the latter part of the chapter it continues the story but there's a different outcome and it's a story about the greed and punishment of Gehazi Gehazi was a servant of Elisha so he he served and and ministered to Elisha he first appeared back in chapter 4 when the Shunammite woman you remember she she clings to the feet of Elisha and in hopes that Elisha will heal her son. And what does Gehazi do? He attempts to pry her away. Like, get off of Elisha. You know, he's, he's really not in lockstep with, with what's going on and what Elisha wants. He's discussed, and this is interesting, Gehazi's discussed in some extra biblical sources that 
that capture uh, Jewish rabbinical tradition, including the, including the Talmud. And in each instance, it presents Gehazi as a man of questionable character, which is consistent with the passage that we are about to read. Verse 20, Gehazi covets Naaman's gifts. Verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, so it's going on in his mind, behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. In other words, he didn't accept the gifts that, that Naaman brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Gehazi, his focus is not on the things of the Lord. He's not talking and thinking about, wow, what an amazing miracle that's just happened. Wow, what a transformation of this man's heart, this foreigner. No, he's thinking about the fact that Elisha didn't take the gifts. And, and those were some amazing gifts. And how nice it would be to have those. He's thinking this foreigner was healed and it didn't cost him anything. That's not right. He thinks Elisha, his master, is unreasonable. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He says, as the Lord lives, I'm going to go after him, after Naaman, and take something and get some of those gifts. The fact that he says, as the Lord lives, that, that right there shows a lack of reverence to say that that one's purpose and, my, and one's actions are as certain as God existing. Wow, who makes that claim? It's, it's actually swearing deceitfully. And that just reveals the, the character that's going to unfold of Gehazi. Well, verses 21 and 22, he pursues Naaman and he deceitfully requests gifts on behalf of Elisha. Verse 21, so Gehazi pursued Naaman when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? He said, all is well. You can imagine he's huffing and puffing. All is well. My master has sent me. That's a lie. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Saying, behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. That's a lie. Elijah didn't tell him to say this. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Another lie. Elisha didn't request this. It's one lie after another. Gehazi lies again and again to cover up his greedy plot. He's not representing Elisha properly. He's certainly not representing the Lord properly to to someone who just came to faith in the God of Israel. How sad it is, folks, to think about the number of greedy, false teachers who operate in churches among believers and who misrepresent Christ to new and immature believers. It's really astounding. And to think of the impact that they are having on people who, d who don't know the Bible, may just be coming to faith, or maybe they're you know, pursuing 
to understand biblical faith and how their greed and the things that they do utterly misrepresent the Lord. It's a very serious thing. Patterson and Austell, another commentator, commentators write, what a contrast can be seen in the meeting between Naaman and Gehazi. Naaman's descent from his chariot, in other words, when, when he sees Elisha's servant come, he, again, he's this high-ranking official, but he descends, he comes down to greet him. He's a humble, changed man. No longer a proud, arrogant person. The grateful, reverent, and humble Aramean came down from his honored place to meet a prophet's serf- servant. He who had been a fallen, hopeless sinner displayed a true believer's grace. Contrarywise, Gehazi, who had enjoyed all the privileges of his master's grace, was about to abuse them and fall from that favor. Really an ironic change of circumstances for these two people. In verse 23, Naaman gives Gehazi far more than is requested. Naaman said, remember, um, Gehazi asked for one talent of silver. Naaman says, be pleased to take two two talents. And he urged him, please, please, I insist, take even more. And bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. Look at how gracious Naaman is. He's, he is so eager to be generous, to show gratitude, because that's, that's the state of his heart. And Gehazi, he'll, he'll take it. Well, Gehazi then hides the gifts back home, verse 24. When he came back to the hill, he took them. By the way, the hill, it's, that's the, it's a definitive article the hill not a hill that would be the hill of the famous hill uh, coming into Samaria the capital city when he came to the hill he took them from their hands in other words took the silver from the hands of his servant the other servants and deposited them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed by the way Omri a prior king in the northern kingdom had purchased the hill of Samaria for two talents of silver, the exact amount that uh, is that Gehazi is now trying to hide. Verses 25 to 26, Elisha confronts Gehazi about his deception and lies. But he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Another lie, lie after lie. Verse 26, then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? This is amazing. God miraculously allowed Elisha to see what happened, even though he wasn't present. It's like a vision where exactly what happened, Elisha saw it. Even to, to the point of saying, I, I saw how he turned in the chariot to greet you. And Gehazi knows that he has been caught. The deception is over. 
he goes on, it, it, and Elisha says to him, is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Kill writes, is this the time when so many hypocrites pretend to be prophets from selfishness and avarice and bring the prophetic office into contempt with unbelievers? For a servant of the true God to take money and goods from a non-Israelite for that which God has done through him that he may acquire property and luxury for himself. The clear answer is no. This was not the right time for that. There can be times for prophets to receive gifts that are proper and reasonable, but this was not one of them. Gehazi didn't trust Elisha. He didn't trust God. He was selfish. He was greedy. He was utterly sinful. And so, in verse 27, Gehazi is given the leprosy of Naaman as punishment. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from the presence, a leper as white as snow. So ironic. Gehazi wanted the gifts of, from Naaman but instead, God gave him the leprosy of Naaman. Kiel writes, It was not too harsh a punishment that the leprosy taken from Naaman on account of his faith in the living God should pass to Gehazi on account of his departure from the true God. For it was not his avarice only that was to be punished, but the abuse of the prophet's name for the purpose of carrying out his selfish purpose and his misrepresentation of the prophet. Very serious thing to misrepresent the Lord and his true prophet. Well, there's some reflections as as we close. First of all, God in his grace still revealed himself to some during the time of the idolatrous northern kingdom, including this foreigner. You know, I, I'm really amazed. You think about it, the northern kingdom, it's a mess. I mean, they, they're just totally walking away from the Lord. Um, and Elijah and Elisha have been sent to minister in that area. And you think about these are, these are like some of the greatest prophets, right? In, incredibly endowed by God with these miraculous powers. And the human thought is, or the human question is, why would God waste them on the northern kingdom? Why not send them to the, the southern kingdom where there's at least a few, some good things going on at times and we know that the messianic line is going to come through Judah? Why waste them on the northern kingdom? And the fact is, is God is still doing a work. He's still revealing himself to certain people and for the benefit of folks like this foreigner, like Naaman. Early in his ministry, Jesus spoke of a prophet not being welcome in his hometown. You remember that? He made reference to the three and a half year drought during the, the ministry of Elijah when, when Elijah only helped the widow who had been a foreigner. And then Jesus says in, 
in Luke 4:27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. Remember, this is Jesus talking. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus' point is that these miracles happened outside of Israel because there, there was such widespread unbelief in Israel. And as a result, God began to show grace to Gentiles, just as Jesus and the Holy Spirit would do with the gospel. So a question to you, does God find a believing and obedient heart in you? Or does he, he need to go elsewhere to find someone to bless? Folks, the blessing of the Lord is in believing and in obeying the Lord, not only in, in the large things, but also in, in the small things. Second, the miracle of coming to faith in the Lord is for the humble, for the desperate and believing, a work God himself performs. And Tom talked about that in his message uh, this morning. The greatest miracle Naaman received was a transformed heart, a new relationship with the Lord. God orchestrated all the steps to make him desperate because of his leprosy, and also to humble him, to realize he has to obey the Lord and do exactly what God says, for there's blessing in that. And to bring him to the point of, of being ready to believe the Lord when the Lord opened his eyes. Matthew 5, 3 says, you remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount at the very beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. That's the idea. You come to the end of yourself. You are humbled through whatever means God uses to humble you. Difficulty. Or in a moment he simply reveals himself and you just uh, bow in humility. But everyone who comes before the Lord in having a relationship is humbled. Luke 18 verses 10 to 14. You remember this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The question to you is, have you been humbled before the Lord to the point of faith and obedience? Or are you still proud and unbelieving in heart? Folks, it doesn't matter if you come to church. It doesn't matter, matter who you associate with. Do you have a proud heart before the Lord? Or, or have you truly been humbled 
seeking to walk in an obedient, um, trusting way before the Lord in what he says. Remember, James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Finally, those who represent the Lord must be faithful and pursue reflecting his character and purposes. Gehazi, this privileged servant of Elisha, this amazing prophet, and what an amazing privilege it is for Gehazi to even serve alongside Elisha. In greed and with a lack of faith, he dishonored the prophet and the Lord, and as a result, he was punished with leprosy. Those who are followers of Christ should reflect the heart of our Lord and walk in obedience. The question to you, do you represent properly or misrepresent Christ to others by your desires and actions? On a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, big-picture perspective, are you following Christ or Are you a hypocrite who, if your true heart was revealed, it it doesn't belong to Christ? And as Tom shared this morning, the call of Scripture, the call of the the message of, of all the Bible, it's one of redemption, that God will save those who humble themselves before the Lord, embrace Christ. Uh, what, what the Lord has revealed, we, we know of Messiah has come. Jesus is here. We know of his gospel. And we're commanded to embrace that. And as a result, we will be given that transformed heart just like Naaman was. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work of redemption from the beginning of Scripture all the, way, all the way throughout the culmination of Scripture. You are a saving God and we rejoice in in reading about what you did for Naaman, a foreigner, but one in in whose heart you did an amazing work of grace and how he he had a changed changed attitude, a, a transformed heart and direction. And it's my prayer that everyone here would also have experienced that transformation that only comes about by being humbled, by being embracing the truth of what you have revealed about yourself through our blessed Savior. In Christ's name, amen.